Where we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be as we begin a new series. I've uh, been looking forward to this series and really been um, wanting to do it for over a year and a half now in, in God's providence uh, because of the session's leadership or the timing of other series. Uh, we are getting to Acts finally now. I think God is gracious in that, that it came after we communicated to you where we'd like to go in vision and mission as a church a couple months ago. Um, we're going to look at Acts, which is often where churches look. Um, was gone last week and uh, at an event that was really sweet for me, um, particularly coming into this week uh, and talking about Acts. I was at uh, University of Florida, which is always sweet for me. It's the motherland uh, for me. Um, my, my, both my parents went there. I went to University of Florida. Um, I'm a Gator um, and proud of it. Um, and, but uh, more importantly than going to University of Florida, I was getting together with some college friends, and we are gathering together for um, an event, the Campus Crusade for Christ, which I was very involved in, was on staff with for a brief period of time, um, has been on the campus at UF for 50 years. And so we were gathering together, those of us who had, many of us who had participated in that ministry over the years and been leaders with it, and were simply sharing about what the Lord had done on the campus of University of Florida for over 50 years, and it was an unbelievably sweet experience for me as someone who leads a ministry uh, still, and to kind of have that long-term view as to what God is doing in this world. It was really cool. Bob and Pam Tebow, who are Tim Tebow's parents, were one, a part of the original students, uh, a part of Campus Crusade in the 1960s. Uh, it was really cool to hear about how the Lord used them and that original group with a passion for seeing their fellow uh, students come to know Jesus. Um, and then to, to, to be reunited to so many of my friends who we had spent so many times um, on Sunday nights praying for our college campus, walking around it, praying for it, and then during the week sharing our faith on campus, whether it be with the Hardy Krishnas at the free food, vegan food that they would hand out, which was utterly disgusting, but you do things like that for Jesus' name. Um, and we didn't ever dance. Like, we didn't ever dance with them. You ever seen the Hare Krishna dance with the tambourine? No? Okay. All right. Um, but uh, it was, that was really, really cool just to hear about what God has done in building his kingdom and saving so many people through the lives there. Very grateful for campus outreach here. And, uh, man, I'd love to come to a 50-year anniversary for CO at West Georgia one day because I think that would be a cool party. But God is doing something in this world through his church because God has given his church a mission and he's given them a power to fulfill that mission. And when churches... When they want their marching orders, when they want to look at what it is to be called and to develop a greater vision for what they are to be, the book they always turn to is the book of Acts. It's the book of Acts. Um, what we see here is we see the mission of the church in its earliest days, following Jesus' life and resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit and how the gospel went forth to the ends of the earth. And that is often where the reason why people look at Acts, and that is in large part why we are looking at Acts as well, to develop and expand the vision and mission of this church and engage us in that. But there is a, there is a danger in making Acts about primarily about the church. Um, this is the typical understanding, that Acts was written by a man named Luke, and we'll talk about that in a minute as we introduce the book. Um, Luke also wrote the, the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. And often people think that the gospel of Luke and the other gospels is about what Jesus did, and now we get to get around to what we're supposed to do. 
But that's not necessarily what Acts is about, at least not primarily. That is what it is secondarily. See, Acts is primarily about what God is doing in this world, and therefore we must read Acts in light of the broader story of redemption that God is writing in his word. Now that has some implications for how we read this book. Uh, One is that not everything that you see in this book of Acts can be taken normatively. By that I mean what is normal in the Christian life. There are some experiences and there are some sequences of experiences in Acts that are not necessarily normal for the Christian life. They are part of a special season of the church. Or they may crop up in special ways at various times in the life of the church, but are not necessarily things that we see normally in the life, day in and day out life of the church. But far more importantly than that is that we must read Acts within the broader story of redemptive history so that we can see that our role... And the focus of what we do is subservient to the role that God plays through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can make this all about ourselves and what, what we're supposed to do. But one, I think that'll crush us. And then two, I don't think that's actually what the book is about. The book is about what God is doing in this world. And when God, when God, it's about what God is doing, you can actually have a vision that is way bigger way bigger than if it's simply about you and what the church can do. So as we dive into Acts this morning, and we've got three points for you, is we're going to do an introductory study here using the first five verses of Acts. As we dive into our series, we'll be in Acts. Get used to it for probably 40 sermons. I expect we'll be here through 2017, um, other than little breaks for summer series and Christmas series. So um, put a bookmark there because you're going to be turning there a lot on Sundays. Verse 1 through 5 is where we'll begin, and we'll dive in. Let me read it. Read God's word to us. Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit for the, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, first thing we're going to do as we um, look at this book is we're going to look at the purpose of Acts. In order to drive towards the purpose of the book, it helps us to understand a little of the nuts and bolts about what's going on here. We get some good information in pretty much the first six or seven words of the book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I will stop there. That tells us two things. One, who the author is, and two, who the recipient is. The I is a pronoun referring back to Luke. Luke is the man who has written this book. He is clearly the author of both the gospel that bears his name and also the book of Acts. And, and both are, we, we know it's this, it's the, these books should be together is because he also sends it to the same recipient, a man named Theophilus, who we'll look at in just a moment. But Luke, we know a little bit about Luke, not a ton, but we know a few things about him. First and foremost, we know that he is a companion of Paul's. We even see this in the book of Acts itself. Beginning around chapter 16, we see Luke's language as he writes the book begins to shift. He begins to use what's called the first person plural, which is what, kids? You see, kids? It's we. Oh, wait, you're learning in Latin. You don't understand English yet. So it's we. He changes to we. 
So in chapter 16, he says he's talking about Paul and his, when he's going on a voyage, and he's talking about we. He's clearly are pointing himself and pulling himself into the story. We see this again. He uses the same language in chapter 20 and 21, and later on at the end of the book in chapters 27 and 28, where Luke has brought himself in as a companion of Paul and included himself in the story of Acts. We also see this, and, and Paul affirms it in Colossians chapter 4 and ver- verse 14 where Paul says that he sends greetings from Demas and also Luke, our dear friend. And he also communicates in a complaint, in a, in a dull and a, a tired moment for Paul in 2 Timothy 4, near the end of Paul's life, where he says everyone else has deserted him except for Luke. Only Luke is with me, he says. We also know that Luke is a doctor, a medical doctor, a physician, um, in, in that verse in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, he says that he calls Luke his dear friend, who our doctor friend is actually how he refers to him. And finally, we understand that Luke is a man who's probably well-cultured and well-educated. We know this in large part because, one, he's a doctor. Uh, even back then, the doctors were uh, given a significant amount of training. But also, there is those who do kind of deep scholarship work on what the Greek looks like they have found that Luke's particular use of Greek is a highly cultured use of the language, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He is a man who kind of, like you would almost know, like old you know, Queen's English, that kind of thing. That's the, that kind of nature of his Greek, that he speaks in a highly cultured manner. So Luke is a highly educated man, and that's, that's well put and important as we see that his role in regards to uh, the scriptures is to provide us a evidential approach and look at the Gospels, as we'll look at in just a second. Now, the recipient of this book is a man named Theophilus. We don't know very much about Theophilus, just a few things. One, his name, which could have been a name that he took on as a Christian, but Theophilus literally means lover of God. Uh, Maybe in one of those things, similar to what you see people do in some religions, where once they have come into the new religion, they take on a new name, a new identity that he may have taken this on, or this may have simply been his given name. We know a few things about him. Most likely he was a man of great wealth, and he was also a man of great importance, perhaps a person of governmental authority and nobility. And Luke chapter 1, we see that Luke addresses him by name again there, and he calls him most excellent Theophilus. This is a term of reverence. So he's writing to probably a well-titled man, a man of wealth, and a man again like Luke who is highly cultured and intellectual, which fits with the Gospel of Luke and Acts, because as we're going to see in turn two now, Luke is giving him a... He's answering intellectual questions that this man may have about the Gospel, about things that he has heard. What we see in these two sections of Scripture in Luke and Acts, that they're written both by the same man and they're to the same man, and that helps us show and, and solidifies the fact that these two books should go together. Luke and Acts are not two separate messages. They are more like two volumes in one larger work that Luke is writing here together. They should be in sequence. Acts is essentially a sequel to the gospel. It's a continuation of the story of the gospel that he has already given in the book of Luke. And therefore, to actually understand Acts, we must not begin at the preface for Acts or the prologue of Acts. We must first go back to the prologue of Luke. So turn your Bible over to Luke Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Once again, it's Luke writing to Theophilus. I'm going to read this section to help us understand what the purpose of Acts is. 1, 1 through 4. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed also good to me, having followed the, all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I want you to see two things from Luke chapter 1 here. First is this, is that Luke is writing to show that Christianity is a historical religion. There is confusion that often seeps into the, the church, is that we can become dumbed down to being Christianity is merely like so many other religions, as being merely an ethical or moral code, or simply just another idea or philosophy out there. Well, just simply an ethical and moral code or a philosophy does not necessarily have to be hinged on history. You do not have to have a historical Buddha to have Buddhism. In many ways, you don't even necessarily have to have a Muhammad to have Islam. All you have to have for these things are their teachings. Like so many, this is the way for so many religions, but not the case with Christianity. Christianity makes the case that it is, it is based on historically accurate evidence. And if that evidence is not there, and if it is not true, then don't believe it. It is not merely a set of rules. You can find many religions out there if you want to have a good moral life. You can go all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi. And many of these religions have moral, ethical codes that are very similar to one another. And that's fine and dandy. But Christianity is a Christianity whose belief systems is based on historical claims. Luke is both a historian and a theologian. And he is basing his theology and saying you should believe these things. Believe the truth about what I'm saying about God and what is being claimed about Jesus. Because it is historically accurate. There are eyewitnesses. And so we see that he has an emphasis on investigation. That now, back then, they didn't have near as many written accounts, although it appears that he goes back and reads written accounts of eyewitnesses who knew Jesus. He examines court records. But very often in an oral society like that, where things are passed on uh, traditionally through oral means, he also went back and investigated by interviewing people, people who knew Jesus. And we see from the Gospels, there was it claims that over about 500 people Jesus appeared to during the time in between the resurrection and the ascension. Luke wanted to go back and talk to them to confirm and affirm that what they were saying was true. Does this person's testimony connect with this person's testimony? Or are people making this up? He treats it like it's a court of law. We also see this not only in Luke 1, but we also see at the beginning of Acts as well. This emphasis of needing evidence Luke actually is going about this and trying to investigate the claims of Christianity. He's not simply taking it as if it's nice superstitions. But he wants it to be historically, he needs it to be historically true. It says this in verse 3 of Acts 1. He presented himself, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them, that's the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them. Now the word there for proofs is the Greek word tekmerios, and it's a technical term that literally means logic, meaning definitive, demonstrative proof or existence. This is what Luke is trying to provide for us. He's trying to provide us evidence 
testimonial evidence that these claims about Jesus, that Jesus lived on the earth and that he lived a righteous life and that he died an atoning death and that he was raised from the dead, most importantly in their eyes, is that that's rather a big deal, right? Too often people think of the, of the, of the early Christian church as being a bunch of kind of superstitious hacks who like kind of just came out of the woodwork. But you know why the resurrection is so profound? Because they didn't expect people to rise from the dead either. It is so culturally elitist for us to think of these Christians, these people who lived 2,000 years ago as if, oh, those dumb people. We're beyond that now. We don't believe people can rise from the dead. They didn't either. That's why they were rather surprised when someone rose from the dead and why it was such a big deal to them and why Luke was like, we got to have some evidence for this. People keep saying this, and I'm not sure I believe this claim. It's rather important for the claims of, of Christianity to actually have historical evidence behind it. Now, second, I want you to see this from Luke chapter 1. In showing that Christianity is a historical religion, what Luke is doing is he's, doing, he's showing that in order to encourage our faith and actually give assurance to Christians. We see this in, in verse 4. He says this to Theophilus, that you may know the, thir- the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That you may know with certainty. Luke is articulating the good news of Jesus Christ and that that good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us is founded upon historical evidence and he is giving us that historical evidence for the purpose of encouraging and growing your faith and growing you in the assurance of your faith. Now this is really important here. And it's important because Acts is going to be about calling us to the mission of God in this world. And when God calls you to things, he doesn't call you to things in a half-hearted, to come at them in a half-hearted way, in half-hearted measures, that you just kind of dip your toe into the, the pool of God's mission in this world. When God calls you to mission, and what we see in the evidence of Acts is that when people took on this mission of God, they laid down everything. They were willing to die. They put everything aside to follow this. Now, listen, if you, will you give your life for something that you're not sure is true? This is really important for the understanding of the book of Acts and calling us to the mission of God is because you will give your life to this mission to the degree that you think the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. If you don't think it's true, forget it. There's no point in it. But if what Christianity is claiming is indeed true, then you you are compelled to give your life to it. You're compelled to give yourself to a God who would give his life over for you, lay down his life for you. You're compelled to give yourself to the one who could defeat death, to the one who is the king of kings and the lord of lords over all things. And so this is integral to the needs of what we want to pursue and push here in the mission of God, the church of God in Acts, is we must become convinced. We must become sure that our faith is true. Because only as we do that will we give our life to it in the way that Acts is going to call us to do so. So that's the purpose of Acts. The purpose of Acts is to give historical evidence that the claims of the gospel are true so that you may give your life over to those truths and live into it. Second, the prologue of Acts. So we're going to look at the, the purpose. Now we're going to look at the prologue of Acts itself and then finally we're going to look at the implications here. So the purpose, the prologue, and the implications. We're going to look at point two now, the prologue. We'll look at three things here in the prologue in verses 1 through 5 of Acts 1. A prologue is given to um, connect these two books. 
That's what Luke is going to do. He does it first by pointing back to what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done. The key phrase in all of uh, Luke chapter 1, and particularly here in verses 1 through 5 in our section today, is this phrase. All that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Now there's something implicit there. And there's something very direct. The very direct is that Jesus has been doing some stuff and he's been teaching some stuff, right? Why we see that he, what Jesus has been teaching is talked about in verses 1 through 5, which is Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. This comes up over and over and over again during Jesus' life, earthly ministry, where he teaches about the kingdom of God. And we also see that in his time between his resurrection and his ascension, that that is the main thing that he focused on teaching his disciples is about the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to look at that more thoroughly next week, and so I'm not going to dive into that at all right now. So that is what Jesus is teaching about, primarily. Giving commands to his disciples and teaching about the kingdom of God. But he's not just teaching. Luke also points back to what Jesus has done, to the accomplishments of Jesus to Jesus' finished work. He does this by pointing back to the, the, the highlights of the gospel, as we could understand them. One, he looks back at the ascension, right? Until the day that he was taken up. It reminds us that Jesus was taken up. Now he's going to go back to the ascension in a couple of verses, but he's, he's connecting to the two, verks, the two books together by showing us where we left off and what has already been accomplished. So we see the ascension, that Jesus is risen, that he is king of kings, that he is sitting on a throne over all the earth. Second, we see the resurrection, right? It says that Jesus, he's pointing back to the fact that Jesus presented himself. In what way did Jesus present himself? It's a really key word. Alive. He didn't present himself as dead. He's not a ghost. Now we have some scenes there at the end of the Gospels where it appears that Jesus is going through walls and doors, and that's a little spooky, isn't it? But it's not because Jesus is a ghost and he is of lesser substance. It's actually because in his resurrection he has a glorified body and he has greater substance. When you're in heaven, you will have a more substantive body than the things of earth. Like water. You can move through water. You are a thicker mass. Right? You have more substance in some ways, than the, than the water itself. In the same way, Jesus can go through walls because he has a glorified body. It's thicker. It's more substantive. It's more real than a wall and a door. So he shows himself alive, a resurrected. And lastly, we also see, he points back to the cross very briefly. Right? He says, he, after his suffering, he gave proofs. It's an allusion back to the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus went to the cross. He died. He actually did die. It wasn't, it wasn't fake. He didn't get up there and kind of swoon for a little bit. He actually died on the cross. So why this look back by Luke? Why this quick reference back to his previous book? Well, one, like I've already said, is to connect the two books. To give an update. To, to make sure you remember, hey, these were the highlights of what happened before. Now let's jump into where we're going. That's part of it. But it's also really important because what he's going to get to in Acts is the mission of the church that God's work through his church here to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, let me ask you something. If there is no gospel, do we have much of a mission? No. If Jesus has not accomplished, if he is not sitting on the throne, then our mission is pointless. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, then our mission as a church is pointless. If he has not paid for our sins on the cross, there is no mission. And therefore, he wants to hearken back, and he says, we must always go back to the gospel. 
Because that is the mission, is to proclaim these good, this good news of what Jesus has already accomplished. When, it says that on the, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, what he is saying is he has accomplished all that is necessary for your salvation. The, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, man, from then on, it's downhill. That's what you and I get to be a part of. The gospel is Jesus doing the work. He has crested the hill, and he has stuck us in the wheelbarrow, and he's shipping us down the hill with his message. And it's an unstoppable force. That's what's going on here. And so we must, re- be, we go, must look back, not only to connect the two books, but when we also look back because the, the gospel, what has already happened in the book of Luke, is necessary for the mission that is going to be proclaimed in the book of Acts. But Luke in his prologue doesn't just simply connect us to the past. He also is going to point forward. So he's going to look at what Jesus has done, but he's also going to show us what Jesus will do. And what is it that Jesus will do? It says it in verse 4 and 5, where Jesus says he makes a promise. And what does he say? He says there's a gift coming. There's something really great coming. And it's coming like a freight train in chapter 2. In fact, all of chapter 1 is going to build towards chapter 2. The, the apostles may not have really understood what was going to happen. This whole like gift of the Holy Spirit thing. And they probably didn't understand what, what in the world is that. What is this to come and why is this so great? See, the apostles have seen a lot of amazing things, right? I mean, the Jesus like walking on water and healing people from the dead and like feeding five thousand. This is pretty cool stuff, right? And this whole like resurrection thing. I mean, Jesus like levitates and goes and ascends. Like this is cool stuff. And yet Jesus goes, hey, I got one more gift. And you're going, wait, you being king, that's not good enough. Or you killing, destroying death through the resurrection, that's a pretty cool gift. Or you taking away my sins, that's a great gift. But he says, I have, I have, there's one more. There's one more significant gift that's coming. It's coming, and it's going to be huge. It's going to be enormous in your life. It's going to blow your socks off, or actually, as we see in chapter 2, it's going to light your hair on fire, right? It's going to change your language. This is how crazy this is going to be, how amazing and powerful this gift is. And this, this gift is not a something. It is a someone. It is the very power of God himself. It is the spirit of Jesus who has promised that is what Jesus is doing. So what he has done is accomplish his work through the perfect life and through the cross and the resurrection. And now he is, what he's going to promise to do is give his Holy Spirit. And this is not new. Like we didn't get to Acts and suddenly there's a new member of the Trinity. The forgotten member. The Holy, the Holy Spirit's been talked about. This whole idea of the Spirit coming is not a new thing. We actually see it in the Old Testament. The idea of when the, in the Old Testament prophecies, when they talk about the Messiah coming, along with that, where it talks about and proclaims that God by his spirit is going to do a new work where he's going to change our hearts. If you can go back and look at Isaiah 44 and Joel 2 are some of the most explicit um, prophecies to this end. It says when this spirit comes, when he invades your life, he will bring a change both in your life, but also in your country, in your culture, and in this world. So in the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, what we see is the Holy Spirit is indeed working. He didn't suddenly get invented in the New Testament. He is working. But what we see in the Old Testament, it's as if God is holding him back a little bit. That God the Father and God the Son haven't released him to do all that he can do. It's like a dam. A dam holds back the power of the water of a river. 
and it lets it out through a pipe or some smaller trickle of that water. It goes through, and so you, get, you can experience it. And what we see in the Old Testament is there is experiences of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up. He's at the temple, and he's in a specific location with the temple or the, a particular people with the people of Israel. And we find that he fills people, sometimes for a brief period of time, but people are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. But they're filled for a brief period of time or for the, their life, and the God does incredible things to them. But what we find here is the Holy Spirit's going to come in power. They're going to be baptized so that everything is changed. This is not simply going to be a small outpouring. And with, the Jesus, with Jesus, the Messiah, when he has come, what he has done with that dam, which has been holding back essentially the, the Holy Spirit in, in some ways, suddenly what we're going to see is that dam is going to be pushed aside and the Holy Spirit is going to flood out and he's going to go into every part of the world. So they're not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Not just at the temple, but in your very heart is where he's going to come live. That's what we're about to see. That's the gift that's coming. So we see what Jesus has done. We see in the prologue what Jesus is going to do. And lastly, we see who Jesus is using. Who Jesus is using. There's one group of people who get mentioned quite a few times here in the first five verses of Acts. And that's these dudes called the apostles. And they're going to take center stage in many ways in the book of Acts. What we see here in just a few verses, we see that Jesus chooses the apostles. Then he says that he, cho- he showed himself to them so that they would be eyewitnesses. He says that he taught the apostles and commanded them to wait in Jerusalem. And finally, it is to this, the apostles specifically that he promises the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a special role that the apostles play within redemptive history. There is something new going on. They get to be eyewitnesses of the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's something that you and I don't necessarily get to do. They get to write Bible. That's something you and I don't get to do. We have the Spirit, but we don't get to write Bible like they do. They have a role and a place of authority in the life of the church, and therefore what we see is sometimes their activities go above and beyond some of the things that we can do. They have a special role in redemptive history. And Luke is emphasizing this ministry of the apostles to show that they are authoritative. Now, this is really important, right? Because if you're going from, if you're a Jew, you've grown up in a particular religion, and suddenly you've come, become a believer, and here it is, like you're gathering together as these people who say, yeah, we believe this Jesus guy, and then what's usually the next thing that happens after people get together? They go, who's in charge around here? And what the book of Acts is saying is, those guys are. Not because they're so great, because Jesus has endowed them with power by the work of his Holy Spirit and because they're direct eyewitnesses of Jesus' work and that he has spent three years with them pouring his life into them. So that's the specific way in which we see God working here. He's working in the apostles, but in a more generic way, in the, that is, he, we see that he is also working in us. It's being pointed out here. Who Jesus is using in the book of Acts is us. It is Jesus working by the power of his Holy Spirit through you and me. Luke is emphasizing here that the same spirit that resided in Jesus now is going to fall upon us for this mission. And we're going to look about this a lot more in the next couple weeks. But this is an amazing thing. Formerly, you know, the disciples had experienced the spirit through Jesus, and now they're going to experience Jesus through the spirits. And this is an amazing thing because by the power of the Holy Spirit, what did God do using these simple men? And what God has continued to do using simple men. He flipped the world upside down. Other than Luke, who's kind of an intellectual and kind of well, well-versed guy, 
What we see is these are fishermen and carpenters, and yet these guys, by the end of this book, and by the, we know by the end of their lifetime, they have gone to the end of the known world. To India and Russia and Spain and Italy. They have gone all everywhere and proclaimed the goodness of Jesus Christ. By the time these men died, they had flipped the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world has ever known, upside down. Upside down. So, that's the prologue. We see what he's pointing back to what Jesus has done, what Jesus will do, and who Jesus is using. It's important for us to finally just say, what's the title of this book? This is going to lead me into the implications as we finish up this morning. Again, I pointed out that the key phrase is what all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what is direct there is that Jesus has done some stuff. What is implied is what? He's going to continue to do some stuff. What he began to do and teach, which means now this book is about what he's going to continue to do and to teach. This book is a continuation. This is not a different message. This is not a different means of God working in this world. This is still through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to take center stage, and we're going to take center stage in many ways. It is still Jesus who is working. So what should be the title of this book? Have you ever asked, asked this about the book of Acts? Like, what Acts? Not, it's not the name of a person. Acts. It's what you do, right? It act, is an activity, right? Brian Regan, is this a good activity? Right? That's, it, this, is, this is about act, activities that is going on in this world. So whose activity is it? Well, sure, it's the churches. I'm sure it's the Holy Spirits. But we also see from Luke 1, 1, it's also the work of Jesus. Which means this, that the title of Acts should probably be something like this. This is what John Stott says. He said that the book of Acts should be, have this rather cumbersome title. The continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. The acts of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. Now, that has, if that's the title, and that's what this book is about, then that has really some great implications. Three implications as we come to a close this morning. First of all, it's this. That if this is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, that what we're going to read and what we're going to learn about in the book of Acts is not primarily about the church's ministry. This is not about what King's Chapel can do. It is not about what Andrew Henley can do. It is not about what Campus Outreach can do. This is Jesus' ministry. That's what's going on here. Luke wants us to read all the way through that this is a book about Jesus and that while he may now be acting behind the curtain, he is still the main actor. He is the one moving and changing this world. This is really encouraging because if he is alive, and if he is sitting on the throne, and if he is the one who has all authority in heaven on earth, then it means he has great power to bring his ministry about, to bring it to completion. I mentioned just a few minutes ago that these apostles, these basic simple men, flipped the Roman Empire upside down. That's indeed what happened. At the time when Jesus, we come to Luke or Acts 1, there were probably 50 to 80 million people in the Roman Empire at the time. There's probably 5 million Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. There's probably about 2.5 million people in the realm of, of, of Judea and Samaria. And there's about 500 Christians. 500 Christians. This tiny, tiny little dot. This little speck. Do you think it was by their power, by them having a great vision, that they were able to turn the Roman Empire upside down? No. It was because it was Jesus' ministry. 
And so when we come about, when we talk about our church's ministry and having a great vision and a mission, let's not fret and panic. It's not too big for us. This is what Jesus is doing. And that is an awesome thing. He says that upon this rock, pointing to himself, actually, I will build my church. He doesn't ask you and me to build the church. He says, I'm doing it. I'm getting it done. And that's a great thing. Talk to Erin Good, who wasn't sure if she could get five people to teach Sunday school this year, and she has 15 people to teach Sunday school. That's a work of Jesus. When we say and put before you, hey, we want to see 20 more children adopted in the life of this church, an actual adopted. We want to see 15 families become foster care families. Most of us look around and go, I'm maxed out. I know I'm maxed out. Four kids is killing me, and I'm supposed to go, I'm going to add some more people to this? I'm already drowning, and yet we're going to say, listen, if, if, if God, if you won't do it, then it's not going to happen. But this is Jesus' ministry, so we, can, we don't have to fret and panic. He does great things. Building on that, the second implication I want you to see is this, is the gospel is a continuing and contemporary story. It's a continuing and contemporary story. If you, someone were to ask you what is the gospel, you'd probably give them the highlights, wouldn't you? You'd say, well, Jesus became, God became, uh, took on flesh and became incarnate. He lived a perfect life, a righteous life that you and I couldn't live. And then he, he took my sin and he died an atoning death and he covered me with his righteousness. And then in, in that death, he, he defeated death by re- being risen from the dead and then he ascended to heaven. If you're really educated, you'll get the ascension to heaven part. Some of us will just stop at the resurrection. So you'll, you'll hit the highlights, the bullet points, the key points of the gospel. And that's, that's well and good. But I, what I want you to see is that Acts is saying that the gospel continues, and there's one particular significant chapter that is still yet to come in chapter 2. But the giving of the Holy Spirit is a part of the gospel. It's a part of the good news. That God comes to invade our lives and live inside of us. That's good news. That the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you a new heart. That's really good news. This is part of the gospel. And what it means is that there is, the gospel is a continuing story that has effect today. I love, I love the, um, in, in, in Chronicles of Narnia, where there's this, this, this phrase that said they would go, the animals would go around saying that Aslan, the godlike, the Jesus character, that he is on the move. But too often when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it as if Jesus was on the move back then. And then we look forward to heaven and we go, and he'll, he's going to move once again one day. But that's not the case. With, if, if Acts is true, then it means Aslan is on the move right now. Right now, he is moving through his church and in his people. This means the gospel is taking, it's being appropriated into our lives this moment. We're not simply looking back and looking forward. We're seeing the gospel effects today. This has effect. This makes our ministry relevant. This doesn't mean we, this means, this means we actually should do ministry. You see, if all you believe is the gospel is something we look back to and we look forward to Jesus coming back, then what we should do is we should build massive walls and we should all hunker down and we should all like get in a circle and sing kumbaya and say, Jesus, come back right now. And we shouldn't engage with culture at all and we shouldn't try to seek change in our cities and in the lives of other people. But what we see is because the Holy Spirit comes and he changes our lives, the gospel is relevant and it is powerful today. We see this in Acts. See what happens in Acts? 
In Acts, because the Holy Spirit has fallen and people go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, what happens to cities? There's one place where they go and a lot of people become Christians in one particular city. And what does it do to the culture in that city? It, the, whole, the whole business center is crushed because it was based around idol worship and selling little idols. And this really hacked off the business leaders, but it changed the culture. You know what America needs? America needs the gospel to be on the move today. It needs the gospel today to become relevant and contemporary to our lives, for Jesus to be on the move today, to be changing our cities, to be changing our families, to be changing our political structures today. And because the Holy Spirit comes, this gospel is a continuing story. And the third implication is this, is that you get to be an actor in that story. This is what Acts is about, is an implication. We are invited to be actors in it. Here, the Father has written the story. Jesus is producing it. The Holy Spirit is narrating it. And we are acting in it. Father has written it. Jesus is producing it. The Spirit is narrating it. And we are acting in it. This is a play that we are invited to become actors in ourselves. Jesus is moving and working. He's directing things. But no, he's behind the scenes now, right? The Holy Spirit comes center stage in the book of Acts. He's mentioned 57 times, but can you see a spirit? No. You know what God does in the book of Acts? He says, Jesus has been sitting at the center stage, and he's going to be the one who's primarily moving, but now I'm going to shove you out as a church into the spotlight. And we're like a little kid, right? The day in which you have to get up and sing, and your teacher just shoves you out there in front of the friends, and suddenly you have that spotlight down on you, and are you going to act? You to play the part that God has given you. It's not by your own power. It's by the power of God working in you. Do you believe this? You believe this, and will you make this the mission of your life? To be an actor in this world, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me ask you this. Will you have a vision, and will you have a mission that fits with who our God is? You see, if we don't have the Spirit of Jesus, nothing is possible. But if Acts is true, if we have the Spirit of Jesus, then nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. It makes our vision as a church really small in comparison. Because your leaders are very small in faith. So pray for us. That if we have the Holy Spirit, there is nothing impossible. Do you believe this? Would your life... Would your life give evidence to the belief that you have God himself living inside of you? That you have the good news of Jesus Christ that is going to change the world? Listen, to the degree that we, not, we don't make this about ourselves, but that we look to the power of the Spirit and the good news of Jesus Christ, we will gain, as we go through this book, a greater mission and a greater vision for our lives. May that happen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I echo what I just said with the prayer behind it speaking directly to you. God, I pray that 10 years, 15 years from now in this church, that, Lord, we would look back through a study of Acts. It's not being just, just another really nice exegetical study of a book. But as we see what is, what is possible when your Holy Spirit falls upon a place, and when people give their lives to the truth of Jesus Christ, that the world gets flipped upside down. 
And so God, in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, maybe look back to this study and say, that, that was the turning point. That King's Chapel was a really sweet church. That people, it was, that, there was really wonderful things happening there. But when, when they went through Acts, and they caught a hold of God's vision for this world, and they got a vision of what could be done, that it changed this church. And through it, it changed families, and it changed cities, and it changed the culture of West Georgia. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that that is what would happen. That you would move this beyond simply a nice Bible study and move this to a, a Holy Spirit powerful working in our place, in our church. Jesus, name I pray. Amen.